the story behind the story in faith, culture, news, and entertainment. This is this is Billy Hallowell. Hey, Mark, how's it going today? Hey, Billy, great to be with you. So, you know, I've wanted to talk to you for a little while now because you have a book out, and the title of the book is Rock Gets Religion. And obviously, that's a title that pops out, I think, for anybody either in the, you know, quote unquote, Christian or secular world, uh, because, you know, for, for me, you know, I've had this deep interest in sort of the intersection of faith and culture. And I think we're seeing that. And you know this as a longtime, you know, film producer and music producer and author. I mean, you've been in this world for so long that, that there's sometimes a tension between you know, the Christian world and the, and the entertainment secular world. And so I guess to dive right in, let me just ask you, why, why did you approach this topic? Why did you tackle rock gets religion? Well, thanks for making me feel old, Billy. I really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, you know, I, I began, uh, this is the third book um, in a series of books that began in 1999. And so, yeah, to go to really date myself, um, <laughs> I, I began, uh, you know, I, I, as a kid, I grew up obviously listening to two worlds of music. There was this uh, mainstream music world, Top 40, Casey Kasem, whatever. And then there was this CCM, Contemporary Christian Music World. And I loved them both, right? And uh, I, I took the good elements of both. And so um, as I got older and into college and things, I began to really question, like, why, why, do, why are we walled off? And really my primary motivation was I just felt so bad that there were so many amazing artists who were in Christian music who never got to be heard by the outside world. And as I began to think about these things, I began to get in the business of distributing records overseas and producing records and music. And I would meet these artists. And, you know, typically at that time, the secular world or my, my friends at school would say, oh, Christian music stinks. You know, it's like cafeteria food. It's horrible. And, <laughs> and I and I would be like, not really. You know, I, I would meet these artists and I go, man, this guy's amazing. I worked with a guy named Rex Carroll with a band called White Cross. And you know, he was called one of the legends of guitar, but nobody knew who he was outside of the guitar world. And so I really began to question, like, thinking like CCM, Christian music is not like some second rate, you know, junior league team. They're actually really good. They're just being kept from being heard by the outside world. And as I began to think about that, I was like, well, why is that happening? And I thought, well, okay, well, really, really secular people just don't like it when devout Christians express themselves in the mar marketplace. They want to keep them on the outside. And then I realized that, well, geez, some Christians were actually kind of cooperating with that. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, when I think of, I mean, I think of, for instance, Eric Clapton wrote an amazing song called uh, Tears in Heaven. Well, the culture heard that, but the culture never heard the response to that song written by a Christian artist named Dana Key. Uh, that, that was called Dear Mr. Clapton. And it begins, Dear Mr. Clapton, I have heard of your loss. And, uh, and so we were in this situation where I realized that people of faith, the devout Christians, were not being heard. And so really that's what got me thinking about, okay, how do we reverse that? How do we allow Christians to be at the seat at the table instead of like, imagine you're at Thanksgiving dinner, right? And there's the main table, and then there's the kitty table. And it's like Christians were at the kitty table, uh, not being taken seriously in the discussion over Thanksgiving dinner, they're off in the corner. And and I really, my aim was to change that. And so these books were part of my attempt to say, okay, how did this happen where we formed our own Christian music culture? How can we get out of it? How can we get these artists really focused into the mainstream? And yeah, we may annoy some secular people along the way, 
But that's America. We all get to sit at the table and annoy each other a little bit. Well, it's like, you know, it's funny you bring this up because I've been thinking a lot lately when you start to talk about, you know, equality and and how Hollywood sort of treats actors and actresses. And we have these different categories, best actor, best actress. And that's a whole other conversation. But I've often thought, well, why can't it just be best actor and everyone's sort of in there? Why does it have to be separated? And we can, again, that's a separate conversation. but, But that leading into this issue of faith and you have the gospel category at the Grammys, you have the best Christian album. And I'm thinking, well, why is it not just best album? There are plenty of, of, you know, artists out there making music in the Christian world that is so good and that is worth being heard. And so it's interesting to hear you sort of talk through this. So I guess the natural question that people have, and I know that you obviously address this in the book, but but how did we end up with this world? You know, what, what were the roots of this decision to say, we're going to have a Christian music genre, right? We're going to isolate ourselves over here. Just take me through that a little bit. Sure. I mean, look, I think there are real reasons for it. Um, we live in a highly, highly secular culture that's led by people that are often very secular or else people that kind of pander to that notion of secularism. Let me take your listeners back to I Love Lucy, right? 1950s. Now, I often use this analogy because I think it's really instructive. So think about the show for a second. First of all, you have her, her maiden name in the show is Lucille McGillicuddy. Sounds Irish to me. <laughs> Irish are often Catholic. Call me crazy. She's Catholic, right? Then you have Ricky Ricardo. He's from Cuba. Cubans are often Catholic. Let's just take a leap of faith. He's Catholic. You have two Catholics living in New York City or wherever they're living. Do you ever see them go to mass? Did you ever see a priest show up and you know give them Holy Communion? Did you ever see any religious exercise in that show? I think the answer is no. I've never seen it, and I've tried to research it. And so think about that for a second. Like, So you have TV executives in the 50s saying, hey, guys, we got to keep religion out of this show. We have to pretend these are highly secular people living a highly secular life. We don't want any interaction with a priest or any kind of Christian anything, communion, whatever. And so that, that begins, that attitude, I think, sets the tone for a lot of our media. And it's, it's almost like we're pretending. You know, we, we always talk about let's keep our movies real. We're not keeping them real at all. We pretend we're a highly secular people who never go to church or mass or religious services. And our media reflects that. And so, uh, you know, what I've tried to do with my work is say, well, why are we why are we acting strange? Let's be normal. Let's let our art reflect who we are. And for half of Americans, that means going to a, a religious service every week. Um, and you, you can see this in movies, too, uh, Billy. I'm a little off topic here, but think about you know some of the great movies that we've talked about in the past that you can obviously see that the Christianity or the religion has been beaten out of it. Yeah. Um, think about Unbroken, right? Uh, Unbroken. It's like even secular critics were watching Unbroken and going, hey, this story doesn't really make sense because there's no redemption in the story. And these are secular film critics. So it's even they're even noticing it. Like, wh- why is there no redemption in this story? And so the fact that they have to go and make a second one, which is great. I'm in favor of, you know, uh, sequels. But the fact that they had to make a second one should be a clue there that something went amiss in the first one when Angelina Jolie was helming it. And now it's in it's in good hands and they'll tell it. But my my point is that uh, there's just this impulse. And so to, to when, when Christian artists were starting in the 70s, you know, they were trying to make music in the 60s, trying to make music that reflected their point of view. And you would have executives say, well, we can't have that. Best example is Larry Norman, the first Christian rock pioneer. He wanted to call his uh, album, we need a whole lot more Jesus and a lot less rock and roll. Sounds cool. Well, the executives at Capitol were like, nah, call it I Love You instead. 
I mean, that's the kind of insanity they were dealing with. So in, in fairness to them, right, um, they thought, well, you know, we can't really do what we want to do here. We're going to have to pull out and, and maybe we'll form a separate industry. And so once the marketing guys, uh, be careful of the marketing guys, only half kidding. I was just going to say, you are one of those guys. Uh, well, the marketing guys are all about micro-targeting, right? So they're like, hey, you guys are Christians. There are a lot of Christians here. Let's build Christian bookstores and, you know, and sell records over there. Now, the problem is, here, here's one fundamental problem to always remember. If you signed up to be a Christian, for better or for worse, you made the mistake of signing up for a religion whose chief leader says, go ye into all the world, right? right. So that's going to be a problem, and you got to always keep that in mind. And so as you try to micro-target or do things only for fellow Christians, you always have to refer back to the leader's manual, right, like Mao's Red Book. Jesus' Red Book says, go ye into all the world. So that impulse to micro-target has to always be balanced by, you know, the leader's commands. Well, you know, it's— it's interesting to me that because you also have this issue of a lot of people in Hollywood who are in, in music, especially who are putting out messages that are, you know, are seen as overwhelmingly negative, are seen as being disconnected from people of faith. And even artists who consider themselves Christians or who have talked about God or who may even be Christians putting out some of this music that a lot of parents are like, no, we can't let our kids listen to this. Um, and, you know, when you're raising kids and you know this um, with your kids, I'm sure, too, it's like you want them Music is a powerful thing, and you want those messages to kind of be resonating and reaching your kids. So you end up actually, you know, partaking and especially in our house, playing Christian music and listening to it. And I and I love so many of these artists. So it's just a fascinating dynamic to me. And so with that in mind, I wanted to ask you, when it comes to the secular world, who are some of the big Christians that you see, you know, legit, you know, Christians? operating and working strictly in the secular world when it comes to music right now? Yeah, so, uh, you know, books one and two, book one was really about uh, the rock and roll rebellion, was really about the history of why CCM was created. Book two was really about, wow, we're starting to see um, artists go mainstream. And book three, Rockets Religion, The Battle for the Soul of the Devil's Music, is really about... Um, how, how many artists now are in the mainstream and are you know believers? And by the way, there's a full range of believers. There's some that are really strong in their faith and others that are kind of wobbly and others that have kind of gone off the reservation. So I don't want to <laughs> l- l- let your listeners think that everybody's just great. I mean, it's a messy world, right? Sure. And I, I don't think any Christian parent uh, wants to have their kid go the way of Katy Perry, at least, uh, right. at least where she is now. Exactly. Uh, but nevertheless— um, you know, we're in a culture that is, I mean, rock is remarkably cleaned up from what it used to be. When I was growing up in the 80s, you know, uh, there was a lot of raunchy stuff out there, and, and there still is, but but a lot of it is is really surprisingly clean. And part of that is the presence of Christians in mainstream music. You know, Jesus says to be salt and light. And when the salt hits and the light hits, uh, things get better. And so, you know, uh, there, there's a lot less of the raunch, uh, but I would also credit part of that to VH1's Behind the Music in a very secular way. I think young artists watched that show and thought, every show is exactly the same here. It's like rock star gets famous, snorts his money up his nose, is homeless, and they're like, I don't want to do that. And so <laughs> you actually have a lot of clean rock stars, you know, people like, I don't know, like Dave Matthews and uh, just people like that that are not necessarily religious or Christian per se, 
but you know, live relatively clean lives compared to the wild rock star lifestyle of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So, so that's part of it too. But there's a very strong presence, and uh, I, you know, Alice Cooper wrote the foreword to this book, and uh, Dave Mustaine of Megadeth wrote the foreword to my last book, and. These are guys that are solidly in the mainstream. They're, they're firm in their faith. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, talk these days about Christian persecution and, you know, Christians being fired and the baker being fired and all that. Well, and, I, and, and that's par also an impulse to retreat. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be the one to tell Alice Cooper or Dave Mustaine of Megadeth that you have to retreat from the stage because you're a Christian, right? That's not going to go over very well. Because those guys are going to say, what are you talking about? I've earned the right to be on this stage in the culture, and I'm not moving an inch. Um, and so th there is something to be said for those kinds of guys who have earned their rights. But, but there's a new generation. You know, 21 Pilots uh, is an example, a group that was offered um, CCM deals and turned them down and held out. And now, uh, you know, I think they won a Grammy. Um, many, many artists like that that the book is about. I think we cover about 40 or 50 artists in here. Um, that are that are strong uh, believers and strong Christians in most cases, and have uh, have made a strong impact in the mainstream. How do you respond? Because there are going to be Christians who say, "Yes, but you know what Alice Cooper does on stage? It appears to be not Christian, or it looks to be you know sort of the opposite of what he should be portraying." Because these are the critiques that I've heard because I've sure. covered Alice Cooper in the past, and I've right. had Christians come back and say, "Well," and and obviously not just Alice because I don't want to put you on the spot and having had him do the foreword, and I know he when I've heard him talk about his faith, he has very legitimately talked about where he is spiritually, and I think it's and I think it's fascinating. But how do you respond to those? who then kind of say, well, no, we should be over here. We shouldn't be out in the mainstream because look what happens when you go into the mainstream. Sure. And, and look, at the book is chock full of those stories as well, right? Um, there's, there's the Katy Perry story. There's the Miley Cyrus story. I've got chapters on each of them in the book. And, and this is messy. This is messy stuff, right? Life in the real world is really messy. And so anybody who reads those chapters is not going to have a Pollyanna rose-colored glasses about this process. There are some casualties as we integrate people of faith into rock and pop. Having said that, the final chapters of their stories hasn't been written. Uh, but, but where things stand now, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not good if you're a parent like that. But as far as Alice, you know, I think of Alice in terms of the, uh, a Roman, the Roman centurion who came to Christ in, in the first century. And, you know, the Roman army was a deeply problematic army that oppressed people around the world. And yet when the centurion finds Christ, he's never told, quit your job and, you know, go work at the, in the Christian army or the Salvation Army or something like that. He, he's told to go back and be the best, you know, Roman centurion you can be. And so when Alice becomes a Christian, this is, this is a significant moment in pop culture history. So the 60s and 70s and 80s often produced um, rock stars who would become Christians they would go to their pastors, and their pastors would say, okay, cut your hair and sing hymns and tour the country. And the problem with that is all, you would lose all your fans that had seen you in a different light until then. So Alice comes back to the Lord, and he goes to his pastor in Arizona, and he says, okay, you know, what do I do now, basically? And his pastor significantly says to him, uh, does God make mistakes? And Alice presumably says, well, I don't think so. And he says, well, he made you to be Alice Cooper. And so I want you to go out there and be the best, most godly Alice Cooper you can be and take the new things you've learned about the Lord and incorporate them into what you do. So, so he, that, that's what he does. And uh, I encourage your listeners to pick up a copy of The Last Temptation, uh, Alice's record, one of his first records after his conversion. It's fascinating. 
all of a sudden, out of the blue, you have Alice Cooper, you know, who you think of as like, I don't know, demonic or satanic. He wasn't, but you think of him that way. Right. right. He, he's giving these these very strong Christian messages, naming the name of Christ, uh, talking to a young couple about, you know, not having premarital sex in the song, Hey Stupid. Uh, and so he becomes this like grandfather figure who's, a, who's warning people about the devil, actually. Uh, and, uh, and so that's who Alice has been. Now, the mainstream press doesn't always understand that. They don't always pick that up. But in the last few years, uh, he's done more and more interviews where he comes out very clearly. And so he's having an impact. Uh, whereas, imagine if he had cut his hair, right, and then gone back to his given name, Vincent Fernier, and then sang hymns around the country. Like, that's not going to reach his Alice Cooper fans. Right. And and just as a missionary, you know, adjusts himself to where where, where he's in, he's at in the culture that he's in. Uh, that's what Alice has done pretty successfully. And, and and by the way, I can tell you that he's got a vibrant, you know, uh, church life. A friend of mine once said they dropped their kid off at child care at his church and they came back to pick the kid up and they found out that Alice had been in child care that day <laughs> watching kids. Right? I and love he's, that. He, he's in the church directory. You know, what I mean, it's like with all the other people and their pictures and their names. He's just a normal member of that church. Well, I love that. And I, and I think it's uh, it's fascinating to hear that, too. I think there's a balance. You know, you, you've, you've got to find, and this was when I wrote my book, Fault Line, this is the whole thing. You know, we keep retreating and pulling away. And I have, there's, I have no problem with Christian music or with Christian music networks or stations or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I also think that some people should be called to go out like you're like you're discussing and be present and make sure that they are spiritually healthy enough to handle that. Right. And and to go out yeah. and do that. Would you say there are a lot of other examples of people who have found a way to be spiritually healthy, to be in the music industry and to stick to their values, not singing about crazy stuff and putting out negative messages? Have you encountered a lot of those stories along the way? Yeah, and by the way, spiritually healthy is a different category entirely because I think part of the problem is the music industry, the way it's organized, is inherently unhealthy, right? The notion that a rock star can be on the road for 200, 300 days a year away from his family and his wife and his kids and still be married, that's insane. And so part of it is we have to actually rethink the very systems that created rock and pop music, the idea of the traveling troubadour artist. Almost impossible. Um, to keep a marriage alive. A lot of my uh, Christian music stars, friends from the 70s and 80s are divorced today. And it's not that they're bad people. It's that you just can't sustain it. So, well, you know, that raises the question, though, Mark, about just not to interrupt, but it raises the question about Christian artists, too. I mean, I know a lot of Christian artists who are on the road the same amount of time and they might have different influences. But, you know, it just it kind of raises that question of, you know, the it seems like the Christian industry mirrors a lot of what obviously mainstream is doing in terms of promotion and being out on the road. Exactly. So you have to remember if the rock industry is birthed by people who want to be out on the road meeting new women every night, right? There's a certain pattern to that, that, it, that that's, was created around that mindset. And, and that's not going to work. You can't just plug a Christian and say, okay, we're plugging you into the, to the system that's designed around this idea of, of a different girl every night, for instance. So I think you have to think about things like residencies, like they do in, in Las Vegas and Branson, Missouri, where the artist sets up shop there and we go to meet the artist. Like that's probably a much healthier lifestyle for an artist. Uh, Celine Dion, for instance, you know, or Britney Spears, they set up residencies in Las Vegas. Their family is there. And so I think we have to actually rethink things like that uh, and go back to things. But but to answer your question, yes, there are there are a number of artists. I mean, I think of like uh, the Fray and Flyleaf and 
um, and 21 Pilots. Um, Tori Kelly is an up-and-coming artist. Yes, uh, yeah, she's the, phenomenal. There, yeah, there are a number of artists who are doing this right. They're grounded. Um, they have people they look to. Uh, you know, they have a, a good church life. And so it is doable. So for every casualty, um, at least for now, there's 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 other stories. And and the bottom line, though, I just want to say just say one thing to your earlier point about having both industries. I, I think you have to keep in mind, and your listeners have to keep in mind that the secular world would like would love nothing better than to have you and your stuff out of the mainstream. Remember that that's a goal for some, right? Yeah. If we can just get those annoying religious nuts out of mainstream movie theaters, out of mainstream music places, go let them form their own industry and subculture. That would be, that's their dream because you're, you're, you're a bit of an annoyance to them. And so I would just say, you know, always like, don't, don't, don't let that, don't let them win in that case, you know, stand your ground and, and say, you know what, I want my ideas to be heard by the, potentially be heard by the entire culture. Yeah, well, that's, you know, to me, that is a really important point to be made. So let me ask you this, and this is my last question for you, and we're going to make sure we link out to Rockets Religion and encourage people to grab copies. But if you could choose, you know, five years, 10 years down the line, where do you want to see the Christian music industry? Um, and, and should there be one still? Like, how integrated? Just take me through kind of like your ideal utopian sort of scenario for where music goes in a decade. Sure. You know, I laid that on the first book, uh, and I think we're almost there. Well, what I what I was hoping for was that uh, artists who were devout Christians in CCM would go into the mainstream, sign with mainstream labels, or have Christian labels function as if they're a normal label in the mainstream, right? That's part of it. It's just to function like you're a normal uh, part of the industry. That means uh, going to conventions and, and you know and pitching your artists to mainstream radio and things like that. And then my, my hope was that a smaller percentage of them would really uh, focus and on on explicit songs that are for churches, that are for worship music, basically. And that's different, right? That's a different category. I mean, most worship leaders are not going to be on pop radio, and that's okay, because they have a specific task, which is in the context of church music, to provide music to help uh, believers who are in church settings. So I, I thought of like an 80-20 rule, where there's 80% of these artists are in the mainstream, 21 Pilots, Alice Cooper, and 20%, the Matt Redman types, they're really focused on providing music for the church. Uh, for the church, like literally the church, not just the church, but like a church building and church services. And I think that's a pretty healthy uh, arrangement. And, you know, in a military construct, right, generally speaking, 80% are on the battlefield and 20% are serving the 80%, right? They're medics and cooks and doctors. Uh, and, and, and that seems to be a healthy, a healthy way to go. But but anytime, you know, the guys in the battlefielders, they want to hang out in the kitchen uh, too long. That's a problem. Right. Because most of us are supposed to be in the culture. And, and, and remember, too, American culture thrives when all different voices are at the table. Right. So you have this group and that group. And when one group suddenly evacuates, that's gonna, that creates a problem in the overall culture because we need all the voices to be at the table. Do you see I lied to you because I have another question. Do you see a world in which the Grammys would ever open up that category of best, you know, album or best artist of the year to somebody like Matthew West or I mean, how is that ever? Not that the Grammys are the end all be all, but I think in music, most people look at them that way. Can we ever get to that point? Sure. But it has to be the Christians themselves saying, you know what? We are tired of sitting at the kitty table at Thanksgiving. We want to sit at the normal table. 
And so until a Matthew West or whomever, uh, well, well, this is how it will change. When the first artist declines their Grammy and says, you know what, I am, a, I am an artist defined by my category of music. And I'm not defined, unless you're going to create separate categories for every belief. So the day that Richard Gere wins Best Buddhist Actor at the Oscars, I'll go along. <laughs> we'll, we'll, go, we'll all go along with this. But right now, Christians are being treated as second and third class citizens that, that need special affirmative action in a special category. And so the day that Christians involved in music and film go to the organizations and say, you know what, we would like to be considered. And by the way, that also means registering as to become voting members of those groups. So as soon as uh, to pick on a Christian label, when that Christian label starts voting uh, in large numbers, that way Matthew West can win in the mainstream pop category. And then Matthew West says, you know what, I'm trying to be at the kiddie table. I want to be treated like a grown person at Thanksgiving, and I want to be considered in the pop rock category that my music is defined by. That's how you'll see it. And one more thing, uh, American Idol is an example of how this has succeeded. So American Idol, think about it for a second. Like for a short period of time, there was a kind of Christian version of American Idol that they tried to create. It was called Gifted. Now, fortunately, it never took off. And because it never took off, American Idol has been flooded with artists who are Christians over the last 10, 15 years in numbers that are just off the charts, and they keep winning, right? So Carrie Underwood is a pop star today because she didn't go to the Christian version of American Idol. She went to the real thing, Daughtry. There are dozens of Chris Allen, dozens of examples of how Christians have transformed American Idol, but it could have been a different story if Gifted had taken off and all the, all the Christians had flocked to Gifted we wouldn't have Daughtry. We wouldn't have Chris Allen. We wouldn't have Carrie Underwood and dozens and dozens of those artists. I think that's a great point. And I want to make sure people head out, grab copies, go to Amazon, go to bookstores of Rock Gets Religion today. We will link out to it. Any final words, Mark? Well, uh, thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, obviously, uh, I'm a fan of, of all the things you do and and also just the larger PureFlix uh, family in the movies. Uh, I'm Not Ashamed, for instance, which I had a chance to work on. Really fantastic movie um, that I think did a great job of doing the things we're talking about here, which that movie could really be enjoyed by Christians and non-Christians alike. You know, it was so well done. Uh, Brian Baugh directed it. Really a non-Christian could watch that film and go, that was really cool. You know, that was a really cool depiction. The acting was good. Uh, it, was, it, it had a strong message of faith, but it wasn't preachy. The faith was very natural, and that's just one to pick on. But uh, but yeah, there's so many good things coming. Yeah, we've turned a corner. Coming. You know, we've turned we've turned a positive corner. I think in film, and you know, when you look at movies, even like the Case for Christ, I thought was very well done. I, I really enjoyed Absolutely. that, and Absolutely. and obviously so many others. I mean, it's just, I can only imagine. You go down the line, and I think a lot of yeah. these movies. And and to your point, they're doing it in a way that, you know, they're not always just Christian movies. Sometimes they're just movies and they're put out there and, and they resonate. And I think that's an important and a powerful thing. And we need we need yeah. more of that. Yeah. And by the way, significantly. Right. I mean, this is a key point. The difference between CCM and what somebody like PureFlix is doing. Those movies are in mainstream theaters. Right. Yes. PureFlix has not said, hey, let's go create a Christian chain of movie theaters. No, those are coming to your local neighborhood. They're taking up space. And that's, that's a real difference from what happened with, with CCM in the 70s. 
We're going to have to have you back again to talk more about this. I, I really think it's fascinating, and I'm going to make sure that I uh, get a chance to read through the whole book. I've been able to, to poke through and look at different pieces, and I just I find, it, I find it incredibly fascinating. I think these are things we need to be thinking about, especially for Christians who are looking to just survive and live in a culture that maybe sometimes feels, gosh, you know, I want to pull away, I want to disconnect, the, re- the reliance and the remembrance that we need to actually be present. So I appreciate this conversation. Thank you, Billy. Great Thank to be with you. your listeners. Thanks for listening to the Billy Hallowell Podcast. Visit Billy on Facebook or Twitter at Billy Hallowell for more on faith, culture, entertainment, and plenty more.